When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Macy. And Macy was in an abusive relationship with an aware narcissist. It's a story of caretaking, jealousy, manipulation, and paranoia. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, I have Macy. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, and today we are going to hear your story, and it's a different story in a lot of ways because... During your relationship with this person that we're going to be discussing, it turns out that they might not know that they have a personality personality disorder per se, but they know that they have a mental health issue. And it is interesting, uh, your story, to know that they're aware of this issue. Their family is also aware of this issue. And that, you know, what's interesting about this is when we discuss things along the lines of, you know, uh, doing the work and, and, and someone taking responsibility for themselves. And here's a really good example of, of someone who is aware of what's going on. And, and when they do the work, uh, they act actually uh, somewhat normal or um, things improve. But you have to always want to do the work if you're someone who is aware that these issues are going on. And when that doesn't happen, things can then really fall apart. So you're going to be hearing today a lot of stuff from uh, you know a different point of view than you might not have heard before and i think this is a really interesting episode for everyone to hear and an experience for everyone to hear and and understand so a really big thank you to you macy for being here and now without further ado macy the floor is now yours Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I'm happy to share my story because I believe that a lot of people can benefit from hearing the experience of experiences of others. 
Um, my experience with narcissism began when I was five years old. Um, my parents had divorced when I was very young. I was only about 18 months old when my birth mother left my father because she didn't want to be a wife. She didn't want to be a mother. Um, this was very unusual back in 1967 for a father to be awarded full custody. I was raised without um, any visitation or even knowing who my mother was. And my father remarried when I was five years old. And he married a woman who was significantly younger than him. She was about 13 years younger than him. And in the beginning of their relationship, when they started dating, I really idolized her. I really um, was really happy to have her in my life. And I thought it was going to be great. Uh, I thought she was a lot of fun. But shortly after they were married, uh, my father was um, in law school at the time. So he was not around very often. Um, he was always working and then going to school at night. And I very rarely saw my father. My stepmother um, was very physically abusive with me from almost from the minute they got married. Uh, my earliest memories of her are her um, dragging me up and down a, a very long hallway. We lived in... Um, in a fifth floor walk up in New York city. And, um, we had a very long hallway and I remember her dragging me up and down the hallway by my hair, um, pulling out clumps of my hair so badly that I still had bald spots. Um, like 20 years later, I still had some spots on, on my scalp where the hair just wouldn't grow. Um, she was, uh, very physically abusive. She would, um, beat me severely. Um, she would um, torture me. She would um, not allow me to go to sleep uh, as a form of punishment. She would make me sit on a hard chair and stay awake all night. Um, and this was all happening um, between the ages of five and six. Um, so just a lot of um, physical torture, a lot of emotional torture, um, very psychologically abusive too. She was um, uh, angry all the time and I couldn't figure out why, you know, as a child, I thought, um, it, you know, it was something that I was doing, although I couldn't figure out, you know, even though I was only a child, I couldn't figure out, well, what am I doing so wrong? You know, as a child, I, I still knew that there was something fundamentally wrong with her. And I didn't internalize too much of the blame on myself, as um, as some people do when they're in abusive situations. Um, we moved when I was in third grade, and uh, we moved into a small town. Um, which was a little bit harder to um, disguise a lot of the abuse. When you live in a very big city, um, it's very easy to be um, unnoticed uh, with so many other people around you. So when we moved to this small town, uh, which was a lot more intimate and everybody knew each other, you know, it was a very small community, um, she stopped leaving so many physical bruises on me. And I realized now that it was because she knew it would have been easier for her to get caught. Um, but the abuse continued um, just as badly as it had uh, in the beginning. Um, so many of my high school friends that I have reconnected with now on Facebook, they the first thing they remember about me is, oh, yeah, you were the person with the crazy mother. Uh, the mother who threw your clothes out the window one day made a big spectacle out on the street. Uh, uh, they, they just have memories, uh, as I do, that there was something wrong with her. And... Unfortunately, some of them have told me uh, as an adult now that they had talked about it with their parents, but nobody intervened. Nobody did anything to get involved. They just all let it happen because um, 
I guess the uh, the reputation uh, is more important than um, than actually doing something about the problem. You know, again, this was a small town. It was a small community. My father had a very high um, political position. He had become a lawyer and a judge by this time. So he was an elected official in this very small town. And my mother, my stepmother had this, um, uh, she was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, so everybody um, really looked at, you know, they looked at the situation and they just chose not to get involved, which was great for them, but unfortunate for me. Um, I ran away from home once in high school and I was caught. I had gone, uh, I had taken the train into New York City and gone to the home of an aunt, a, a distant aunt, who really was not very familiar with the family. And um, I told them at the time, you know, I'm being really abused in this household. But nobody believed me. Um, they looked at my father, and they looked at my mother, and they said, oh, this is not true. And then, of course, my mother, my stepmother um, was just blaming it on me, saying that I was just a juvenile delinquent. Uh, which was absolutely not true. She threatened to put me into the state system and declare me a person in need of supervision. Um, again, it was uh, again all the blame was placed on me, as if it was all uh, my actions and my behaviors that were bringing this abuse. Um, after I ran away from home, I was suspended from school because I was taken to the principal's office. Uh, because I had left school in the middle of the school day in order to catch the train and run away. So they suspended me for cutting school. And when the assistant principal asked me why I had run away, I said uh, that I was being abused at home. And she looked me dead in the eyes and said, I don't believe you. And I think it was that moment that I really realized, um, you know, I had gone to my aunt and she didn't believe me. I had gone to, you know, other other people and they didn't believe me i have you know here i was sitting in the principal's office and she didn't believe me i think it was that moment that i realized um i might as well just keep my mouth shut um and that really did a lot um forming my personality for future relationships that i would enter that were equally as abusive i i learned uh not to reach out for help i learned to just keep my mouth shut and not say anything um, but after I graduated from high school, I graduated from high school in 1985, and I turned 18 uh, in June of that year. And my birthday slash graduation present was a suitcase, which I was told to pack and get out, um, get out of the house. So I ended up going, uh, you know, moving in with uh, uh, a friend in New York City that I uh, met at a job that I had there. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My, uh, my relationship with my family was strained. Um, even as a young child, even uh, at five and six years old, uh, one of the earliest memories I have after my father and my stepmother were married is we were driving in my mother's car and she drove this big green Plymouth, uh, Reliant. I think it was like this big monstrosity of a car, you know, back in the seventies. And, um, 
we were driving uh, on the highway. And I remember having these thoughts that I just wanted to kill her, which is like, you know, horrible thoughts for for a six-year-old child to be having. Um, but I had been watching a lot of cartoons, and uh, one one particular cartoon was like Roadrunner, and uh, with the Roadrunner, where where he's always trying to kill the coyote, you know, drop an anvil on his head. And as a child, I would sit there and fantasize that that was her, you know, and that I was, you know, able to get her out of my life in some way. Um, so when I was thrown out of my house at the age of eighteen. It didn't really bother me so much because one of the things throughout my most of my teenage years and throughout most of high school, my mantra was, I can't wait to get away from these people. I can't wait to get away from these people. And even as a child, even without knowing what was going on, I knew that something was fundamentally wrong and that I wanted really nothing to do with these people. I wanted to just get away from them and never have to speak to them again, my father and my mother. And of course, um, once that happened, once I was thrown out of the house, um, they immediately lied to everyone about where I was. Um, they told people that uh, I had moved back with my birth mother, which was not true. Uh, so they were lying to other relatives. They were lying to my friends back in this small town. They were lying to everybody, um, which I know now is, uh, you know, is, uh, is something that narcissists do. They have, you know, these little... Uh, I, I don't I don't like to call them lies. I call them delusions, you know, because they, they actually believe that this is true. Um, but they were covering. They were covering for themselves. They were covering their tracks. And they were trying to make me look like the bad one all along. My stepmother had already driven a wedge between my father and his family. Uh, we weren't allowed to see uh, grandparents. We weren't allowed to see cousins, aunts, uncles. She just completely drove a wedge um, between my father and I. Uh, and the relatives on his side of the family. But back when I first left, it was a relief for me. I was like, okay, fine, <laughs> I'm, I'm gone, you know, no problem. But other people um, would try to encourage me to reconcile with them. And I got a lot of uh, being made to feel guilty for not speaking to my parents anymore. Oh, this is your family. Um, these are the only people you have in the world. You have to make up with them. And again, that guilt was being placed on me as if I had done something wrong and I needed to go apologize to them. People just didn't really get it. Um, and we hear a lot in the narrative now about toxic family. You know, don't encourage um, people to stay in toxic relationships just because you're related by blood. Um, it's no different from being in, in a relationship where you're not related by blood. And you walk away from it. Toxic friendships, toxic jobs. But toxic family members were not really a thing that was talked about in our society yet. Um, yes, we knew it existed. Um, but for some reason, the blame always shifted back to the victim. It's your fault. You must have done something to upset them. You've got to be the bigger person. You've got to go apologize to them. And I stood my ground and I said, uh, no, I don't want anything to do with these people. There's no love lost. And shortly after I had left home, I became pregnant um, out of wedlock. I was unmarried, and my son was biracial. And this, of course, was a huge um, uh, uh, disaster for my uh, extremely conservative Republican small town family. They were at Roman Catholic to boot. 
So they were extremely embarrassed by the fact that I was pregnant out of wedlock, and they were extremely embarrassed by the fact that the child was biracial. And they began to harass me over the phone and try to convince me to um, put the baby up for adoption or, you know, get rid of the baby, put it up for adoption. Um, they were against abortion because of uh, uh, being Catholic. They didn't want me to have an abortion, but they wanted me to put the baby up for adoption. So they began to harass me uh, over the phone, and they would call and um, uh, say things to me like, oh, you're going to be on welfare your whole life. Uh, think about um, when you pick up your food stamps, uh, how your your grandmother's going to feel. You're taking her Social Security money for your food stamps. And they would just say the most awful things to me. And that didn't work either. They uh, They came down. They drove down to the city one day to see me. And they took me out to dinner. And this was a last-ditch effort to bribe me to give up the baby. And they said, oh, well, if you give the baby up for adoption, we'll get you an apartment and we'll pay the rent for you. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, there's conditions here. You know, we're not going to help you. We're not going to get you an apartment so that you won't be homeless with your baby. We're going to get you an apartment if you do this, if you do what we want you to do. And I politely declined. I said, uh, no, thank you. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm keeping my baby. I, you know, I don't care what you have to offer me because uh, you've had your chance to, you know, do the right thing by me for the last 18 years and you haven't. So I, uh, we were sitting in this restaurant, in this Chinese restaurant. I'll never forget this. And I had to use the restroom. So I went into the restroom and my stepmother followed me. And she came in, and I was washing my hands at the sink, and she stood behind me. And when I turned around, she grabbed me by the neck, by the throat, and she pushed me up against the wall. And she said to me, you're going to go out there right now, and you're going to tell your father that you never want to see him again. And keep in mind, I had been brainwashed and mentally abused and controlled by this woman for 18 years, so I had no ability to stand up to her. She absolutely terrified me. Um, uh, she she had absolute control over me. She was able to make me do things that I normally would not have done. So of course I walked back up, but walked back out into the restaurant, sat back down at the table, um, was completely um, you know shaking a little bit. I was nervous. I was scared. And she looked at me and said. Why don't you tell your father what you just said to me in the bathroom? And I said, obediently, of course, because I had been brainwashed to do everything I was told to do. I said, uh, I don't ever want to see you again. And uh, that was the last time I saw them. Um, so years later, um, I, it, for many, many years, I would tell people that I was disowned by my parents. My, my family disowned me. My parents disowned me because I was pregnant and I had an interracial child. And I kept saying that for years and years and years and years. And then I started using the word estranged. You know, I started saying, well, I'm estranged from my family. Um, I don't have any contact with my family. And, and for years, anyone I would tell the story to, whether it was a good friend or a stranger I met on the street, they always laid the same guilt on again. This is your family. You need to... You need to make up with them. You need to, you know, this is, they're, they're all you have in the world. And 
I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't get through to anybody. I couldn't make them understand what I had been through and why it was so necessary for me to stay away from them. So, of course, my son's father was um, not uh, present in my life. He was actually a, a drug addict, um, and he actually had left me before my son was born. And um, I, I raised him alone for five years. And then I got involved in another relationship with a man that I met when my son was five years old. And I thought, okay, you know, things are looking up for me. We got married. We bought a little, a little place upstate. We moved upstate. Everything was great. But there was a lot of issues with, um, with his personality. Um, that This was my first husband. Um, uh, I noticed things about him. Like he was very arrogant. Um, he was uh, working uh, as a police officer. And I thought, well, you know, police officers have this this attitude, you know, that cockiness, that arrogance, uh, that uh, I'm above the law kind of. Um, and that was kind of how my first husband was. And uh, as a result of that, we, we divorced. Um, and I stayed single for many, many years. We, we, we separated in 1997. And I didn't meet, uh, I didn't have any serious relationship. I had like a string of, uh, you know, just, you know, casual dating or, you know, casual relationships, but nothing serious, nothing long-term. I moved uh, from New York to the Midwest. Um, so I had relocated, um, was kind of just being, a, you know, doing the single parent thing, raising my son by myself, um, working all the time, you know, just trying to survive. Um so before we get to discussing your uh, whoever the the story is about you know how are you feeling about yourself uh, before this happens and i guess what are the issues that are i guess presented to you that you know that you're dealing with at the time and what are some of the things that you didn't know what you were dealing with? like at this point of your life are you in touch with your emotional IQ? Absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. Um, I think I was kind of existing in this, um, you know, I like to say I was living like in the physical world without really giving much thought to um, the spirituality that exists beyond it, which is generally when we begin to be more in touch with our emotions and our true purpose. Um, I was just basically living day to day, going to work, surviving, trying to deal with things. Um, but I was never really in touch with anything uh, emotionally, although I did know there was something wrong. I did know I was depressed often. I did know that I had trouble communicating with people. Um, but a lot of this wouldn't really make sense to me until much later. Um, because keep in mind that I had learned to keep my mouth shut whenever I had a problem. I had been taught, I had been conditioned to just don't seek help for anything because nobody's going to believe you anyway. Um, I had tried uh, with my first husband, we had tried going to therapy and it wasn't really working. Um, so I just kind of it drifted through life, just, just living and existing, but without giving any real thought to where I was emotionally. Um, I knew that I was sad all the time. I knew I was depressed. Um, and all I really wanted was to have someone in my life, just to have a good person to grow old and, and die with. 
Um, but I also knew that I wasn't, I, I'm not the type of person who needs to have a boyfriend or needs to have someone. I'm quite comfortable being alone. And, you know, like I said, I left my first husband in 1997 and I stayed alone for over 10 years uh, without a serious relationship. So I knew that I wasn't the type to, um, I knew that my need for companionship and for support and for, for genuine love wasn't going to push me into a relationship um, quickly. You know, I, I wasn't going to just meet someone and be like, oh, you're the one. And, you know, we're going to get married and everything's going to be happy. And um, I knew that when the time was right, it would come to me. So I became more more patient in a sense where I was waiting for um, the right time and the right person. But at the same time, I still had no idea how to make that happen, if that makes sense. Because my social skills that I had been taught uh the the trauma that I had gone through as a child was still so unresolved and I hadn't been taught how to look for healthy relationships. I didn't know what a healthy relationship is because I had lived in, existed in this dysfunctional relationship for so long and I thought that was normal. So in 2004, I was uh, living in the Midwest and I was working in uh, the automotive and in, in an automotive related industry working for a supplier of automotive components, um, my business, the, the company I was working for, it wasn't my business, but the factory I was working for um, began to look for ways to get rid of people without laying them off because if they laid them off, they would have to um, give them unemployment benefits. So I actually lost my job. I was... Um, terminated because I was a mid-level management and my boss came up behind me one night and he said, uh, I have been instructed to look for a reason to write you up because they're trying to get rid of you. And I thought, oh, here we go again. People are going to lie about me. People are not going to believe me. And um, I made the decision that night to quit my job. And I, I quit. I just didn't go back. So I started to think about, well, what's next for me? I, I, I started thinking like, making a list of like, um, what do I like to do? What can I do that's different? I got tired of all the minimum wage, retail, factory, restaurant jobs. So I decided I was going to start planning to leave the country. I was going to, uh, I decided I wanted to teach English. I wanted to uh, um, go abroad and maybe try living abroad for a while because now my son was um, an adult. He was uh, um, over, you know, he had turned 18 by now and he was living on his own. Uh, so I had no more, you know, no reason to stay in the United States anymore. So I started to work some restaurant jobs and try and save money and make a plan. I decided I was going to go to Egypt. And I decided that I was going to um, take a, a, a training program over there, which would give me certification for teaching English to speakers of other languages. So I started to... Uh, uh, do all the research that I could to try and make this happen. This is back in the early 2000, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, the internet, you know, we had the internet, but we didn't really have all the resources on the internet that we have now. We didn't even have smartphones yet. We were still using like the, the flip phone. So we didn't have all these apps and different things. And um, I came across an ad in a magazine one day for a website um, that uh, matched up people who were looking to travel with people who had rooms available in their homes. Um, I won't name the website, but it's very famous, and people can probably figure out what it is. 
And so I thought, oh, this is a great idea. You know, I don't have much money. I'm going to be leaving the country without much money. Um, I need help, you know, in this foreign country. So let me get on this website and try to, you know, meet up with some, make some friends in this country and maybe they can help me. So that was how I met my second husband, um, the one that the story is about. Um, he responded to my uh, to my ad on this website, and um, he said, uh, "Oh, no problem. Uh, you can come and you can uh, you know stay as long as you want. I have an extra room in my apartment." And um, I said, "Well, I have a dog. I have a Rottweiler." <laughs> And I'm bringing the Rottweiler with me. And he was like, oh, okay, no problem. I love dogs. So I thought, you know, I felt relieved. I was like, okay, this is part of the problem. You know, you know, I have this problem sorted. And it was about a year before I was actually flying to Egypt. And we started, he started calling me regularly um, to check up on me. And we would just talk on the phone as friends. And uh, I thought, I thought he was nice. I thought he was just being very, you know, personable. Um, in December, uh, he told me that he had to fly to the U.S. for a business trip, and uh, he wanted to meet me. And I thought, okay, well, it probably would be a good idea that I meet this person before I become their roommate. You know, that would be like the wise thing to do. Uh, I might as well take advantage of that. So I flew out to the state uh, where he was. It wasn't, uh, it was actually in the west uh, of the U.S., and I was living in the Midwest at the time. And the minute we met each other, we hated each other. We we just didn't get along from, from the minute we met. Um, the first night we met, we went out to dinner. And one of the very first things he did was reach over and take some food off my plate and say, well, you don't like broccoli. And I said, um, well, actually, I do like broccoli. Um, you know, why are you, you know, that's kind of rude, you know, for you to just take food. We, we barely know each other. You know, that's something that you do maybe after you've known someone for a long time, but not like when you first meet them. I thought it was a little strange. Um, there were, there were very many, there were so many red flags that were, that were waving in, in those early days when I first met him. Um, he didn't, uh, it, he, he kind of challenged everything that I told him. You know, like, keep in mind, he was not from this country. I was. And, you know, he was looking, like, to buy some alcohol. He wanted to buy a bottle of wine to bring to someone's house as a gift. And it was Christmas Eve. And I said, oh, you know, you can't buy alcohol on Christmas Eve. Um, the law prohibits sale of alcohol on Christmas Eve. This was, you know, at the time, in this particular state we were in, you could not buy alcohol on Christmas Eve. Um, but instead of taking my word for it, because I know you know, I, I live here. Um, he, he made me drive to seven different liquor stores, uh, only to find them all closed. And instead of just saying, um, look, I know for a fact, you're not going to be able to buy alcohol. I continued to oblige him and continued to drive to all these different liquor stores. So I look back on that moment now, and I realize I was setting myself up again to just be this, um, person who didn't challenge anything, who didn't stand up for herself, who didn't um, um, disagree with anything that anybody said, but just dutifully do everything that you're told. Um, that goes back to my childhood. So just, uh, what is it about him that you eventually start to like? Um, 
yeah, that's that's a great question because um, he he is what we would call a covert narcissist. So he's got the very charming um, exterior, and and it is very genuine. I know a lot of people might disagree with me and say, "Oh no, covert narcissists know exactly what they're doing. Uh, they're sneaky. They're they're doing this intentionally. They're putting on this great facade intentionally." Um, but there there was this genuine uh, kindness, this genuine caring, um, this this big heart, this person who who genuinely was seeking for the same things in life that I were, just for somebody to love and understand him. Um, and I started to fall in love with that, and I started to like that. Um, so, so in a way, it was like uh, maybe like in that movie when Harry met Sally, where their initial meeting with each other didn't go the right way for both of you, but then a moment happened where you saw what you wanted to see and he showed what he wanted to show or how he genuinely in your mind felt like he was and Mm -hmm. felt maybe you, uh, I guess you got felt seen and um, that you guys had a shared future type of vision. Yeah. I, I, I think I get what you're saying with that, but actually when I look back on it now, I realized that I didn't feel seen but I felt uh, uh, what I what I realized now was happening was I saw the opportunity to fix someone else. Uh, so it's not that I felt seen, but I was seeing his vulnerability and my caregiver uh, empath kicked in and said, "Oh, I can I can fix this." Um, you know, so that that's kind of what it was. Um, I don't, you know, looking back now, I feel like I was never seen by him, um, which I'll get into a little bit in a minute. And what did you think needed fixing in him? Um, well, he was telling me about how his mother had passed away when he was very young. He was 18. He lost his mother. And I saw uh, I, I saw this vulnerability in him and this, this intense sadness and this intense loneliness. And, um, uh, you know, I didn't know him very well at the time. We, you know, we were just meeting. This was in like the first three days of our meeting. But um, I, I felt that he was just very sad and lonely and that what would fix him was, uh, um, you know, being loved by someone, being loved unconditionally, being loved genuinely, because I knew that that was what was wrong with me. You know, I always felt like the only thing I really need is to to be loved truly and unconditionally without um, uh, the uh, conditions that my parents put on me. Like, well, we'll love you if you do this or we'll love you if you do that. So I think what I was seeing in him was what I was feeling inside myself. Um, And I kind of recognized that um, at that moment. And I felt like, oh, we have a lot in common. We're both suffering from traumas in our past. Um, We're both not lonely, but alone. You know, and we both need um, that connection with uh, that deep connection with another human being. So I think I felt um, at that moment a lot of vulnerability coming from him. And I felt um, um, that I could fill some kind of void in his life. You know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From there um, we, uh, we were getting ready to say goodbye after spending a few days together. Um, And as he was walking me to the car, I had this rental car and as he was walking me to the car, he was extremely sad. And I could tell that he didn't want to say goodbye and, 
he was about to cry and I kind of felt the same way. And I said, oh, it's okay. You know, I'm going to be moving in about two weeks. You know, we're, I'm, I'm moving to Egypt in two weeks and we're going to be living together and, you know, we'll see what progresses from there. Uh, so two weeks later, I arrive in Egypt and uh, he picks me up at the airport and he's shooting these daggers at me like if looks could kill. And I remember walking out of the airport and seeing him there and I thought like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, why is he angry at me? Why is he giving me these horrible looks? And um, uh, he was very suspicious of me and very paranoid. And I thought that was very odd because we had just met two weeks earlier and had like a lovely Christmas uh, to get, you know, at, you know, after the initial little, little thing that were going wrong had started to get nice. And I thought, you know, geez, this is like a complete 180. Uh, so I spent like the first week uh, locked in the bedroom in the apartment with my dog alone. And then uh, a few days later, he knocks on the door and says, uh, I'm going out. And I was like, oh, great. Thank God. You know, go, go out, you know, because it gave me a chance to get out of the bedroom uh, and walk around a little bit. He comes, the, he comes the next day and knocks on my door and said, my friend is here and he wants to meet you. So the friend takes me out for coffee. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but the friend was uh, sent uh, like on an expedition to check me out and make sure I'm okay. And he was to report back to my uh, my roommate at the time, you know, the, the one the story's about. Uh, oh, yeah, she's okay. She's a decent, she's a decent girl. So once I had uh, lunch with a friend, had coffee with a friend, uh, he relaxed around me and he became more um, uh, and calmer. You know, the, the paranoia just completely disappeared. And he comes walking out of the room one day with a knife, walking out of his bedroom, because we weren't sleeping in the same bedroom at the time. He comes walking out of his bedroom uh, later that day with a knife. And I said, oh, we're, we're, you know, what are you doing with a knife in your bedroom? Where are you, you know, cutting some food in there? And he said, no, I was sleeping with this under my pillow because I thought you were going to kill me. And I thought he was joking, but he was dead serious. You know, we laughed about it at the time and we laughed about it a little bit afterwards. But I realize now that that shows the the cognitive dissonance in his mind. He legitimately was uh, extremely paranoid over me being there. And he was sleeping with this knife under his pillow. Um. We decided uh, to start a relationship. Uh, initially, I was uh, thinking all these things, that they were weird, but uh, at the same time, they had an explanation in my mind. I thought, oh, it's cultural differences or, um, you know, it's it just, you know, a new relationship, you know, getting to know each other. There's always that adjustment period in any new relationship. And there was a lot of little things that a lot of little things that started to happen that would be extremely normal in any culture, in any relationship, not normal, but happen normally between men and women. Like, for example, he would go through my computer um, because he was extremely paranoid that I was talking to other men or, you know, so I thought, okay, this is jealousy. You know, this has nothing to do with culture. Now this is just jealousy. Um, So I was always, I was being accused a lot, uh, Oh, who are you chatting with? Uh, You know, Yahoo Messenger was a big thing at the time. And I had a lot of friends on Yahoo Messenger. And he would, uh, when I would be in the shower or something, he would go through my chat history and go through my internet browser history. And I was uh, very annoyed by this. So I was starting to lose a little bit of trust, you know, so I changed my passwords and I uh, disallowed him access to my computer. Um, 
uh, I thought I was fixing the problem by doing that, but I was only making it worse because it made him more, more, uh, con- more convinced that I was hiding something. So how far into you being in his home is this taking place? Uh, about six weeks. Okay. So are you guys, do you consider yourself to be in a relationship with him at this point? Or you guys, like what is, you have a label? Yes. At this point we were in a relationship. Okay. So, so you started off, you were talking to him for a while before you even went over there. So you, you established, you know, uh, on that ground that you two had some sort of chemistry before you even met. You guys were at least friends on, on a specific level or and got to know each other. Your initial meeting with him when he got there was not great, but obviously, you know, from what you knew of him before and, and the chatting, you, you fought through that and then you got to this point where you saw the vulnerable side of him and eventually... You know, you warm up, he warms up to you, you make your way over to um, Egypt, you're living there. Uh, Very quickly, you guys are a couple, you're in his space, he's showing uh, jealousy here, and he's very hot and cold as far as uh, how he is interacting with you uh, throughout this time from the beginning of your messaging to here as far as you're you feel you've fought through it it seems to be somewhat comfortable or a chaos that you might have been used to from your whole entire life yes and you're there um you know you're not uh, a full you know i mean you were you're you're creating a boundary here with your messenger but at the same time you do find yourself to be a little bit uh, voiceless and so now you're here Six weeks in, and you know you are, um, you know at, at this point. Well, I guess what happens from here? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I was I was setting little boundaries, you know, by changing my passwords uh, and not sharing them with him. Um, but yeah, I did feel voiceless, and and the thing is that with each uh, incident that happened, you know, when when he accused me of uh, chatting with someone. Uh, and, and I would deal with it and I would make it blow over. I always thought like, okay, that's the end of it. You know, with, with each little incident that I would blow over, I, I thought I was putting it to bed. You know, I didn't think it was going to keep creeping back up again. And that's my own naivety because I had never been in a jealous relationship before. With my first husband, there was no issues with jealousy. And I had never experienced jealousy before. I had heard about it through other people and I had heard about it through you know knowing what other women go through in their relationships and I thought well it's just my turn to deal with this you know it's something that that happens to everybody eventually is what I was thinking Um, but with each issue I would um, talk until I was blue in the face and get him to realize that no I'm not chatting with other men I'm not cheating on you and then I would think okay there that's done you know uh, that's put to bed but I was wrong you know that that was my own naivety um so one day, um, about uh, I had been there since February, and in uh, March, um, he says uh, he didn't propose to me, but he says, uh, "Well, something's going to happen pretty soon, and you're going to have a different ring on your finger, and I'm going to have a ring on my finger." And I was like, oh, "Okay, you know, <laughs> we didn't we didn't have uh, any kind of formal proposal or anything. We just decided to get married." Um, 
part of that was motivated by um, the fact that we were living in um, uh, a, a culture that really frowned upon cohabitation um, before marriage. Um, now, he, he was a little bit different than most typical Egyptians in that he had his own apartment. Uh, he had a lot of freedom that his family gave him. He wasn't like a traditional um uh, it, it wasn't a traditional Egyptian situation where we would not have been allowed to um, to do that. You know, his 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 remaining family knew that we were living together, and they weren't really you know happy about it, but they were okay with it. Um, so we decided we were going to get married. Um, we we talked, and you know he he wanted to get married, and I wanted to get married. So we just decided we were going to do it. And it was going to happen pretty quickly because um, uh, in in Egyptian culture, it's just a little bit different. Um, we didn't do like the traditional uh, the traditional wedding, so it was just going to be like a civil a civil ceremony. So about a week before the the marriage was supposed to take place, he was sitting in his chair one day in the living room, and I was walking through the living room, and as I walked by him. He had this really ashen look on his face. And he was a little bit pale. And he says to me, don't marry me. I will ruin your life. And I stopped dead in my tracks and was like, what the heck did he just say? You know, I was like shocked. I was like floored. Um, it was even going through my mind, like, you know, why would somebody say that to somebody that they're about to get married to? You know, like in the history of marriage, has anyone ever said this to their significant other before? So I, I went to him, I turned around, I went and I sat down in the chair next to him and I was thinking he was just nervous. I was thinking it was just nerves. And I sat down and I, I was very reassuring and I was like, uh, what are you worried about? You know, everything's going to be okay. Uh, don't worry, you know. And so I was doing all the talking. I was just trying to calm his nerves and reassure him. Um, and then without really saying anything, the smile just came back into his face. The color just came back into his face. So again, I thought, okay, good. That's blown over. It's put to bed. It's, uh, you know, a buried issue. Um, we got married. And the day after we got married, I had to leave and go to Alexandria, which was an, a, a city a couple of hundred kilometers away because I was doing my training program that I initially went over there for. And while I was, uh, I was going to spend the weeks, I was going to stay during the week in Alex and then come back to Cairo on the weekends. Um, it was only for about, it was only supposed to last for about 12 weeks. So only about three months we were going to be apart. And I would go home on the weekends. And each time I would go home, I was met with that same indifference, that same hot and cold, that same condescending stare, that same, those same accusations. And I was, and I was like, what is going on here? You know, like we've been away from each other all week. I come home on the weekend. Instead of being happy to see me, you are meeting me with this, you know, absolute contempt, you know, what, what I'm sensing as contempt and hatred. Um, but it was that, you know, I, I was saying it's like this paranoia, like, like I'm out to get him or something. He always had this like overwhelming feeling that I was out to get him in some way. Um, so I told him one day after about four weeks of, you know, five, five or five or six weeks or so of commuting back and forth, I said, look, I'm not coming home this weekend. I need a break from this. I can't deal with this anymore. This is really ridiculous. You're acting uh, so crazy. I don't understand why. And I didn't go home that weekend. So he took the train up and he came to where I was. 
and he brought me a gift and and he said um i have to tell you something and he said my father told me that i have to tell you what i have and i said okay that's really strange you know that's really odd and he said the truth is that before i met you i was seeing a psychiatrist for this issue um you know apparently he knew but didn't didn't tell me um that he had had psychological issues related to a woman he had been engaged to in the past and he did the same thing to her but she uh broke the relationship off because she saw the abuse and she ended it and um he of course you know told me when he met me all about the crazy ex in brazil and oh the the you know he called her the b word in brazil and she 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 used to go crazy and lock me out of the house for no reason and i'm hearing all this and of course i'm going to believe him because i don't know her and why would he lie to me but then i started thinking like okay maybe she wasn't so crazy maybe she saw the same things i was seeing but she was smart enough to realize that she needed to get out of this relationship you know she ended it with him uh before they even uh got married but at this point we're already married now so now i'm kind of like um okay well uh I have a choice to make, but the only choice that I felt um, that I could possibly make was to stand by his side. Maybe in retrospect, um, that was not the right choice because I would spend the next eight years uh, sacrificing myself um, in order to save him. Um, but that was the choice that I made because we were already married. Yes, I was very angry that he had married me without telling me that he had been uh going to a psychiatrist that he had uh, you know had this same issue with another woman in the past that he had even had issues with other family members you know being paranoid being abusive being uh uh just really uh doing the same things is the caretaking of i can fix this person your driving force um, yes, I actually honestly thought that, um, we would always be able to come out the, on the other side and that eventually we would, there would be a way to completely resolve this and, and come out completely on the other side. So yes, my caretaking was definitely kicked into high gear. Um, and did you think that you could fix it? I didn't think that I could fix it. I felt that my love for him would help him want to fix himself and and give him the motivation he needed to work through the problems and that I would be by his side and we would work through it together. So I didn't see myself as the the answer or the solution. I saw myself as part of the solution. Um you know, I had lived with a drug addict in the past, my son's father, and I had learned the hard way there that you can't fix somebody who doesn't want to be fixed. So I think I had learned my lesson from having to live with a um a drug addict enough to know that okay i can't be the fixer but i can stand by your side and say i'm here with you i support you i'm going to go through this journey with you whatever you need um, but you've got to be willing to do the work yourself also um, and that's something i did say to him from the very beginning once we started uh, going to the psychiatrist together so we we started going to the psychiatrist together um and 
the psychiatrist was amazing. Um, absolutely wonderful. This was the, a psychiatrist in Egypt. The doctor was very direct with him. Uh, you know, my husband would sit there and say uh, uh, things in, in, the, in the office like, well, she, 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 she does this, she does that. And he would take out like a list from his pocket. Look, I made a list of everything she does. And the doctor said, whoa, whoa, stop right there. You're the problem, not her. And, you know, so like that would never happen in, in, in a therapy session in the United States, you know. So I totally had somebody on my side for the first time who believed me, who understood, because he knew this person from before I even came into his life. You know, he had been treating him with the issues for a long time. Uh, so, um, you know, he would say things to the therapist like, well, I'm a great guy. You know, I'm such a great guy. And the therapist said, I don't see anything so great about you. You're, you just look like just a normal guy to me, you know. So it, it was really helping. And, and, and the year 2008, 2009, it was like the, the best year of our lives. You know, he, he also got on some kind of medication, which I know um, medication doesn't cure cluster B disorders in general, let's say. Um, but the medication helped regulate the mood and regulate the thinking and um, the irrational thoughts and the cognitive dissonance and the accusations and all of that. Uh, it stopped for a really long time. Or if it came, uh, it was very quickly um, dispelled. I was able to very quickly say, hey, look, stop this. You're doing it again. And he would back down and say, okay, I'm sorry. Um, so there, I, I, I always felt that there's hope for this person to change because he's aware of the problem. He's aware of the aura that surrounds it, that feeling that you start to get before uh, you have these irrational thoughts. I said, you know, he's aware of it. So I really felt that there was hope for him to change, that there was hope for him through through therapy and through me standing by his side and us working on this together um, for it to change. Um, so in 2010, I decided uh, I wanted to move back to the U.S. And, uh, of course, he wasn't able to do that because we had to file paperwork to do immigration. Uh, which was going to take some time. So we decided that I would come back to the U.S. and I would try to get everything set up for us here so that when he came a year later, um, everything would be ready. Well, I had forgotten what happens when I leave him alone. You know, when he's left alone with his own thoughts, with his own mind, he becomes very um, um, paranoid. The irrational thoughts start kicking in and... Um, he would uh, call me. We would talk on the phone every day, and he would start accusing me again, making accusations again. And uh, I, I made a boundary. I said, "Look, I'm, I'm done. You know, don't, don't call me right now. You know, I need some time away from you." And a few months later, uh, he contacted me, and he said, uh, "You need to come back to Egypt and pick up the dogs uh, because I have to move. Like, I have to move out of this apartment." So I went back. Um, I, he was being so cruel to me. He wasn't speaking to me. He was being hot and cold. And um, he sent me an email and said, um, this is over. Uh, it's just not going to work out. And it, it was just insane. And this is at the point where I start to have a breakdown without even realizing I'm breaking down. Because now I'm fighting uh, you know, I'm dragging all my friends into this thing. Oh, my God, what should I do? Can you help me? I had my friend's husband call him. I was like, I'm actually having a breakdown at this point now because I have no idea what's going on. I'm getting very confused 
um, by his inability to communicate his feelings and his emotions with me. Whenever he got upset by something, it was always uh, to discard, discard, discard. Um, but I didn't even realize it was a discard at the time. I thought, you know, what's going on? I'm so confused. So I, sh- I showed up in Egypt to pick up the dogs. And um, he was extremely cold with me the whole time I was there. He drops me off at the airport and says, have a nice life. Have a nice life. And I'm just like, oh, my God. You know, I'm like totally floored. What's going on? I'm trying to deal with getting two dogs on an airplane. With, you know, um, I get back to the U.S. And again, I set that boundary. Again, I get a phone call and um, I'm being accused of things I'm not doing. I'm being accused of being after him for his money and this, that, and the other thing, like all these uh, accusations. And I was like, look, this is it. I'm done. You know, I'm done. And at that point, I probably, that was probably at the, the only point I could have and would have and should have walked away um, without caring anymore. But several months later, the revolution happened in Egypt. And uh, he, uh, I guess, contacted me again. I realized now, I realized now that it was a Hoover, uh, that I was being Hoovered um, because he needed something. Um, he all of a sudden wanted to fix his marriage and wanted to work on his marriage. And it was very important for him. And he was so sorry and he was never going to do it again. And he was going to keep going to therapy and blah, blah, blah. All the things, you know, came out of his mouth, all the right things. And of course I was right there with it, you know? Okay. I'll give you another chance. I said, but do not come to this country unless you're coming here for me and to be with me oh, no, no, I promise it's, you know, it's to be with you and I love you. And um, years later, um, after I was discarded for the final time, I ran into a mutual friend of ours from here in the U.S. who had said to my husband one time, why are you always complaining about the U.S.? Why did you come here then? And instead of saying I came here because I loved my wife and I came here to be with my wife and for our marriage, he said, I came here because I was worried about my future in Egypt after the revolution. And when I heard that, I realized he didn't come here for me. He needed something from me. It was something that he needed from me. I was a means to an end. Um, because he came here. He came here in 2011. Uh, things were so-so. Uh, they continued with um, uh, th- things continued between 2011 and 2015 with the um, what was normal for us, a lot of me defending myself, a lot of me screaming and yelling, a lot of me with reactive abuse, reacting to the, um, the absurd things he would say and do and um, trying, I, I say, uh, you know, trying to put out, I was trying to put out all these little fires and prevent them from becoming a big, <laughs> a big forest fire. So I was putting out small fires. So it was never really great uh, for the time he was here after he came. But it was uh, tolerable. Um, And again, I still had hope that he had the ability and the desire to change. Um, Shortly after he got his U.S. citizenship, you know, because a certain amount of time has to pass. You have to live in the country. uh, You have to reside in the country for uh, uh, three years in order to apply for citizenship through marriage. Uh, It's five years if you're unmarried, but it's three years if you are married. Um, when, when the time came for us to apply for his citizenship, uh, 
there's a thing on the uh, immigration website that says you can file the paperwork up to six months in advance, but they won't start processing the paperwork until the three-year anniversary of your uh, of your green card issuance happens, which for us would have been uh, August, right? So around May uh, of two, so a few months before August, he was pushing me to file the paperwork, and I said, "Well, you know, honey, this is really expensive. The paperwork costs about a thousand dollars to file. We don't really have the money right now, and they're not going to start working on it until August anyway." So why don't we just wait? Oh, you just, uh, you know, uh, you just uh, are thinking about yourself, you know, you know all, all these things. Like he just started attacking me verbally immediately um, with a lot of guilt, a lot of verbal abuse, a lot of anger, a lot of hatred. And he wasn't really getting the fact of what I was saying. Um, he said, he said, no, we can file the paperwork now. I said, yes, that's true. We can file it now but they are not going to process it until the actual date, right? Um, but this wasn't getting through to him. It just wasn't getting through. Like so many of the things that, that I, I look back on now, I realized was cognitive dissonance. You know, no matter how much logic and evidence and proof you present to a person with a personality disorder, if they believe something in their own mind, that's how it really is. So that, that cognitive dissonance, being unable to process things logically, uh, was was a huge issue. So um, we we filed the we, we filed the paperwork uh, a few months later. I wouldn't do it immediately. He was he was really pushing me to do it earlier. Um, as soon as he had the U.S. passport in his hand, literally, he stopped sleeping in the same bed with me. And at first, I thought. Um, you know, okay, sometimes, you know, it's normal for somebody to fall asleep on the couch. You know, I would try to wake him up and bring him back to bed. And he would spend the night on the couch. And one night turned into two nights, two nights turned into three nights. And then it just became like a permanent thing. And, and again, I'm, I, I'm recognizing that something's wrong. Something's not right. Um, but nothing is really registering with me yet. Um, he, he was having a lot of difficulties um, finding and keeping jobs here because he always had issues um, getting along with coworkers and um, understanding how the system works and really um, wanting to step out of uh, outside of his own cognitive dissonance and really examine how things are supposed to work. Um, in, in his mind, he should just be getting these great jobs uh, w- with executive level salaries because he's such a great guy. You know, but I tried to tell him, you've got to start at the bottom. You know, I, I would try to encourage him and show him how to do it. But, of course, he always wanted to do things his way. And everything that came out of my mouth was just absolute BS, you know, as far as he was concerned. Um, somebody else could tell him the same thing that I had told him. And, of course, coming from them, he would believe it. You know, which uh, the uh, person that they are abusing, the, the victim, uh, the target, becomes the uh, uh, the one that they believe or that they talk to less and they, they care more about strangers than their own family. And they listen to strangers more than their own family. So one day in 2015, I, I was really having a nervous breakdown. My anxiety was getting worse. I was uh, screaming. I would, I would uh, collapse into these literal screaming fits. 
like, why, why can't I just, why can't I get through to you? Why won't you listen to me? Why, why don't you understand I'm your wife and I love you? And uh, I was collapsing on the floor, shaking with literal physical anxiety symptoms. Um, and I came home one day from work and he was gone. Uh, he had taken some very odd things in a suitcase, like winter clothes, even though it was June. Um, and, and he was gone. And I found out later that he had contacted some friends of his to come and get him because he told them that I was going to kill him. He thought that I was going to kill him because he didn't understand what my breakdown was. He really felt frightened by seeing, by witnessing this and seeing this. I was literally having a nervous breakdown. I was literally collapsing. I was literally crying. And instead of comforting me and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm hurting you. Let me stop doing that. He would walk up to me and say, do you want me to leave you? Like he was excited for me to say, yes, please leave. You know, he was waiting for that moment. And I realized at that moment that he was trying to make me the bad guy. He was trying to make me the one to say, get out. That way he could go out and say, oh, my wife threw me out. I'm the victim. She threw me out, you know. I look, I look, I can, I can reverse engineer everything now and it makes complete sense. But at the time I was going through it, it didn't make any sense at all. Um, so he had disappeared. He ended up, uh, uh, going away and trying to make it out on his own. And about three months later, I was hoovered again. Uh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have run away. Um, I want to come back to you and, I want us to work on things. And I said, look, I know for a fact that you have nowhere else to go. And that's the only reason you're calling me. No, no, no. I promise. I promise. That's not why. Um, so he came back. Um, and within about two weeks, everything was right back to the way it had been. I was being devalued. I was being disregarded. My, uh, I was being silenced. I was being stonewalled. I was being shut down when I tried to talk. I was being discounted with everything that I tried to suggest or say. Um, and that kind of put like a big, that, that started a divide between me and him. And I was starting to move away from um, a very strong emotional attachment with him, although I still loved him and I still wanted it to work. Um, but he was able to railroad me to file for divorce um, much in the same way that my stepmother had been able to railroad me to go out and tell my father that I didn't want to see him anymore. Um, he was able to railroad me to file for divorce, and I didn't want that. I hadn't wanted that. I wanted us to work on it. Um, so it was a very confusing time. It was very, um, uh, nothing was making sense to me. I didn't understand why one minute somebody was sleeping on the floor beside me because my back was hurting, you know, so he slept on the, on the floor next to me all night. And then the next minute he disappears, you know, like I didn't understand how you can love someone one minute and then just turn that off the next minute. Um, it, to me, that was just unfathomable. So I made a lot of emotional appeals to him to try and get through to him and say, look, you know, uh, we love each other. We can get through this. Then, he was just completely um, acting like we were just casual strangers off the street. And then I eventually snapped, uh, which was what he was trying to push me to do. He was pushing and pushing and pushing. He would come home from work every day. I would come home from work every day. And he would push all the right buttons to where I would react. And I would react 
in a in a in an angry way, and then it would start to escalate, and then he would be throwing his hands up in the air and saying, "Look what I have to deal with. Look what I have to live with." You know, like he was the victim. What and, what were the buttons that he knew exactly uh, what to push with you? Anything and everything. Like um, if I would clean the house, uh, he would say, "Oh, you have OCD. That's all you care about." Um, I would go into defending myself mode. Um, like, uh, one, one time he said to me, um, I can't believe anything out of your mouth because everything you say is a lie. Um, so that would of course set me off screaming, like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, give me an example of when I've lied to you, you know? So I would go into this defense mode first, like defending myself against these, these false accusations or these assumptions or these things that he thought about me. Um, like one time he said to me, uh, well, you don't know how to communicate with people. Uh, you don't know how to talk to people. You never had a real man before. You never had a real relationship before. Um, so he was making a lot, of, a lot of assumptions about who I am and what I was about. And I would say to him all the time, like, you have never taken the time to get to know me. From day one, when you took that broccoli off my plate and said, you don't like broccoli without asking me, do you like broccoli? Um, you just made all these assumptions about me and you continued to do that for eight years and you've never gotten to know who I am, what I'm about, what I like. Um, you don't even know what my favorite color is. You know, like I, I would say these things to him. I said, I feel like you, you don't see me. Like I'm here in the room with you, but you don't see me. And I said, sometimes you make me feel like I'm a robot. When I want to talk about something, you tell me to shut up and go away. But if you have a problem at work and all of a sudden you need to talk about it, you want me to be there for you, but you're not there for me. So he was pushing those buttons um, and just basically causing me to go into the reactive, crazy, reactive abuse, um, which which really starts off as um, as defense and then trying to salvage. I wouldn't even say save. I would say salvage and then save would come after that. Um he had so many moments of lucidity throughout our relationship where he did realize that he was hurting me, um, particularly when we were still in Egypt and still under the care of the therapist there, that I felt that if I just talked long enough and I could get through to him and I could hit that chord, that I could strike that chord that would make him have a moment of lucidity and say, oh, I have to stop hurting this person. Um, you know, I have to stop doing this because it, it happened before. Um, but I realized the difference between then and now was then he needed something from me. So it was in his best interest to fix things with me because there was still something he needed from me at the time. And once he no longer needed anything from me, then he lost the motivation to change and to fix the behavior. Because, you know, they say that a person with personality disorder tell on themselves. Like if you listen to what they're saying, if you listen to their projections, that they project onto you. They're really talking about themselves. And one day when I was standing in front of him, um, I was begging him and pleading with him and crying and saying like, why are you doing this to me? He looked at me and he said, I have nothing to offer you. And I realized it a little bit later that that was a projection. And what he was really saying is you have nothing to offer me. I don't need anything from you anymore. I'm done with you now. I got everything I needed from you. So now it's, easy for me to shut you off and walk away so i knew that those moments of lucidity would be you know harder to come by if if they were possible to obtain at all but yet i still kept fighting i still kept fighting with everything in me to save it because i loved him yeah so he um 
he he railroaded me to file divorce and then he would push all my buttons pretty much every day um, until I eventually snapped and threw him out. I said, if you want to go so bad, yeah, you know, you keep coming home every night saying, I'm not going to be here that much longer. I'm going to, I'm going to move. I'm going to leave. Then just go, then just go. And, uh, he was like elated. He was elated. He did nothing to stop me, uh, from piling all his belongings in the living room. And he said, uh, I'll have someone here with a truck to get them tomorrow. Um, knowing from what I had gone through over the years, trying to talk to people about the abuse I was going through, they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. They didn't fathom the depths. And they, they would say things like, well, why don't you just talk to him? Why don't you just tell him this? And I'm like, you don't get it. You can't. It's like talking to a wall. You might as well be talking to a brick wall because you just cannot get through uh, to, to people like this. Uh, but it didn't have a name yet. Um, this mysterious mental problem, mental condition that I had lived with for eight years didn't have a name yet. Uh, I started having nightmares. And I <clears throat> I was like, what is going on? Why am I experiencing this? And it was several months of living with this and living with intense nightmares, intense fear of going outside, hypervigilance, just being extremely jumpy over everything, being extremely defensive that I Googled, why am I having nightmares? And it came up, you may be a victim of cluster B disorders. And as soon as I read that and started reading what the abuse was, I was like, oh my God, it suddenly all made sense. It suddenly all uh, became very clear. Everything that I had gone through, the discard, the Hoover, um, the, the projection, the, the discounting, everything that I had lived through for eight years suddenly made sense to me. And not only that, but I suddenly realized that I didn't, I wasn't disowned by my parents. I had gone no contact with my parents before I even knew what that was um, by maintaining no communication with them for, for over 20 years. So I realized that I had spent 22 years of my life, which was, over half, uh, nearly half of my life at the time being abused by narcissists but never having a clue what narcissistic personality disorder was or let's just say cluster b right because uh cluster b with borderline narcissism they they all go uh, they all go together and, and they can pull from either category so i had no idea what I had been dealing with. And I realized um, very slowly over the next two years of being, after being discarded, that I was fighting a losing battle, um, that it was not possible for him to change um, unless he truly became uh, extremely aware of his thoughts and his behavior. And he spent years in like a cognitive behavioral therapy based program. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say it's not possible to change. I think uh, it, it is possible if they want to. Um, but the narcissist doesn't stick around anywhere long enough to face that because if things get too intense for them, it's easier for them to discard and run and say it was their fault. It was that person's fault. So I'm going to go over here and start over. And then a few months later, you run into the same situations. Get up. Oh, well, I'll just discard again. I'll just discard this group of people and go start over again. They spend their life basically discarding anytime anybody gets too close to the truth or gets too close to the core 
of, of their personality. So as far as you and your healing process, uh, I guess, what were you dealing with as far as trauma and things along those lines? And how did you get through it? Yeah, um, what what really happened with me when I entered the PTSD phase um, very quickly, which was the nightmares and, you know, being afraid to go outside and, and all that, um, I really realized um, how my childhood had affected this relationship. And I really look back on that ex-girlfriend of his that I heard about who had left him, uh, who broke up with him after a few months of going through the same thing and I really thought the difference between her and I is that she was a healthy person who recognized the abuse immediately and decided not to subject herself to it and I had been conditioned to survive in a toxic environment so to me um, I wasn't strong enough to walk away from that because I thought it was normal Um, it it really brought back a lot of um, uh, resentment in me towards my parents and what they uh what they did to me because they didn't adequately prepare me for um they didn't adequately prepare me for the real world you know they they conditioned me to uh think that it was okay to be in in these toxic dysfunctional you know relationships and and i saw i i looked at my father and i realized that my father is an empath like myself his his first wife my birth mother was a narcissist who discarded him, left him with a baby. And then he also attracted another narcissist into his life and uh, allowed her to abuse his daughter. And I, I think to myself now that if my father had um, set an example for me where he would say, uh, where he would have said, uh, look, um, you're abusing my daughter and this is not acceptable to me. I'm taking my daughter and I'm leaving you. That, that might have made my life entirely different. I might have, you know, thought twice about standing up for myself in those situations. But what I saw my father do was stay in spite of knowing what was going on, in spite of being aware what was going on. My father was very aware that I was being abused by this woman. I, I watched him stand by and try to make his marriage work at all costs. So that was the example I had to follow. You know, I didn't have uh, uh, enough, uh, I don't want to say strength. I didn't have enough understanding about what a boundary was at the time because I had never been taught how to set a boundary. And as far as your healing process goes, what has been the most difficult thing for you? Um. The most difficult thing for me has been um, uh, reconciling with the fact that I still can't fix him um, or that um, my love is not going to be able to fix him um, because I still love him. Um, and and he knows this. And I, I try to remind myself that, you know, yes, I would love to have a different ending for the story. I would love to be able to say um, uh, he went to therapy, he got fixed, and he came back to me. Um, But at the same time, uh, for me, the best thing that has helped me is to realize that it's okay for me to still love him. Um, 
because now, remember I told you in the beginning, I was existing more in the physical world and the physical existence. I, I've become a much more spiritual person. Um, I don't want to say religious, but spiritual in the sense that um, I'm looking at the beyond this life. You know, what is the overall purpose of this life and our interactions with people on this planet? Um, and, and what is the importance of that and how does it affect our spiritual growth? So I'm, I'm no longer really existing just in the physical body and the physical life. I've kind of taken it a level beyond. And I say, um, it, you know, love is a very powerful thing in this world. Um, there's so many different kinds of love. And it's okay for me to love this person even if he doesn't love me back, you know. And when it comes to the, you know, when it comes to the lesson that you may be, like, let's say this whole relationship was a lesson to you or, you know, you know how you're supposed to encounter the same thing over and over again until you learn a specific lesson. Mm-hmm. It, what would that, that be for you within this relationship? Yeah. Um, the, the definite lesson that I learned is that um, I have a right to be respected. And I shouldn't have to ask for that. Um, I have learned how to walk away from people who don't respect me much easier. Um, and, and not just relationships. Because I've never had another relationship since him. I have never dated and I probably never will. But I have walked away from toxic employers and toxic customers uh, much faster than I would have in the past. Because... Um, for me, I just realized what my limit is now and that it's not worth trying to um, defend yourself against someone who already has their mind made up, in, in a sense. Uh, I know not to waste my time or my energy on people who I, I, I have to fight to earn their respect or fight to get them to see me. And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for everyone who is listening, what would they be? I would definitely say um, pay attention to your gut um, and don't uh, don't trust everything that people are telling you. You've got to look at the situation completely, um, step outside of yourself objectively and try to analyze what's happening. You have to, you know, it took me a really long time of doing a lot of uh, uh, research and you know, they, there's there's a meme that floats around that says, you know, a person who is in a narcissistic relationship ends up with an honorary doctorate in uh, narcissism, you know, personality disorders, um, and that's kind of true because once you really learn that, you you throw yourself into all this research, and and you have to be able to objectively look at your relationship. When when you're being hurt, it's very hard to be objective because you're going to be very emotional, but if you can step back from it, maybe. Don't talk to other people. Don't believe everything you're reading online until you objectively look at that um, yourself and, and, and trust your instinct. You know, if you're seeing a red flag, look at that red flag a little bit further. What is motivating that behavior? Um, you know, what is the, uh, listen to the things that you're, that, that are being projected onto you. If you're, if, if projection is a thing that you're experiencing, listen to those projections because that's going to tell you a lot about what the person's feeling uh, about you. And that's something that podcasts such as this are doing a great job about, you know, educating people. Um, I remember the first time when I saw the Gabby Petito uh, body cam footage, 
Um, the very second she appeared on camera and I saw her face, uh, I was just washed over with this feeling of, oh, my God, I understand exactly how she feels and exactly what she's going through. But so many people that uh, engaged in debates over this online um, didn't completely fully understand uh, what exactly was happening. You know, but other survivors do understand that. So I think it's really important. I think it's really important to have these intelligent discussions. And um, I can only speak from my experience. I cannot say that my experience is 100% the same as your experience or the next person's experience. So I only speak about my experience um, and what I went through. And it may not look exactly the same as what you're going through. But if something that I've said here uh, sets off alarm bells in your head, I would suggest stopping and really investigating that a little bit further, looking into it a little bit more. Well, Macy, I really want to thank you for being here today and sharing your story. You did a fantastic job in, in giving people uh, a view or perspective in a way that they may not have heard ever before on the show. So a really big thank you for doing that and, and sharing your story and letting it all hang out there. Uh, for everyone to hear and learn from. And so a really big, 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 big thank you for, for doing that. And now before we finish our show, uh, you know, sometimes we, we go into a little spiel after. I don't know if people listen to it or not, but today we're actually going to do that, but we're also going to listen to a letter someone sent in. So here is someone's letter to their abuser. Dear Minarch. I will never stop hating you, and I will never stop thanking you. Hating you for the emotional abuse you made me endure, and thanking you for making me realize that I was done accepting less than what I deserve. My whole life, I felt like I had so little value. I had emotional scars that I was too afraid to heal, and I didn't even have the tools to start doing the work that needed to be done in order for me to grow. You brought me to the end of my rope, and instead of holding on, I finally let go. I decided it was time to throw out my old way of living. I was done hating myself, and I was finally ready to do the work to build a better life. I could run through the whole story, how you tricked me into believing you were a good person, and then isolating me and breaking me down. But that's not what this is about. This is about reclaiming my power and building myself up and leaving behind the beliefs I held about myself. I do not deserve to be physically intimidated, yelled at, gaslit, criticized, manipulated, shoved, disrespected, abandoned, put in danger, controlled, and isolated. I do not deserve to be abused. The absolute mindfuck you made me live for those years will be a part of me forever, but I refuse to let it define me, and I will never let myself be treated that way again. And this is where I have to thank you because life had to get that bad for me to start recognizing the patterns that I had. I had always thought so little of myself, but I had no idea how far someone would go to exploit that, to gain my trust, just to turn around and treat me like less than a human being. Contrary to what you said, people do care about me. I am valuable and lovable. I can achieve what I set my mind to, and I deserve to be happy. I will not silence myself and I will not hold my needs below anyone else's. I also have to thank you for how explosive you made the fallout because I couldn't just shut up and not tell anybody what was happening. Everyone could see it. 
I wasn't able to bottle everything up and keep it as my little shameful secret. And eventually I was running to my family for protection for the first time ever. And their reaction was nothing I could have ever imagined, especially not after the narrative you'd been reinforcing in my head. They helped me. My sister and her husband protected me on the night we broke up. They helped me move all my stuff out of our house the next day. My mom and her husband took me in until I was back on my feet, and everyone made sure that I was okay. I didn't want to accept any of it, but I felt so protected, and I still feel a stronger connection with my family from those months than ever before. And eventually, I opened up to my friends about it. I continue to open up about it in more authentic ways, and I'm learning to be vulnerable and let people see the rough parts of me. I recognize the people who unconditionally love me, and I communicate openly and honestly with them. I'm learning to be vulnerable and accept help when I need it. Finally, I feel like I'm receiving the same love that I give. I'm building a life worth living, and I'm starting to see the value that I bring to the world. I'm sure you thought you broke me. I was a shell of a person by the end, but really everything being broken was a chance for me to build new. I'm so proud of what I've accomplished in the last couple of years. The person that I am today is so much stronger than I imagined I would ever be. I look at myself with love and acceptance, and I'm so excited for the rest of my life. And I really want to thank that person who sent in that letter. Uh, thank you so much. And for everyone who's still listening, if you want to be a guest on our show, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And at the top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. You click on that button. It'll have all these instructions. Please do read the instructions and send us your information in the format that we ask. You can either send it through the guest form or email us at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, at the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network where we have forum boards for you to post on. We have integrated Zoom support meetings every Wednesday night, Saturday night, and a new group now at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time every other Thursday afternoon. And we also have on there ad-free episodes, episodes that never made it to air. And if you really just want to support the show, you don't even want any of that other stuff, and that doesn't matter to you, just join our group, and that helps us – well, that helps support me, helps support the show, and helps support other people in the long run. So big thank you for those that just want to do that. And you can do all of that at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page. Just press that support group button and we will see you there and if you need even more support please do go to domesticshelters.org because if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse you are not alone because domesticshelters.org offers you an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are dealing with and experiencing they can connect you with local resources like shelters and they can find ways for you to heal and move forward so please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource today. And once again, I want to thank Macy for being on the show today and giving us a new point of view uh, of a lot of different things. So big thank you to Macy. And now from Macy and myself, we hope you have a good night.